Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 199. And today in the show, we are joined by Levi Morgan. Levi is one of the most accomplished archers and bow hunters in the world. And in our conversation today, we're going to be discussing his keys to becoming a better archer and deer hunter. And we're going into some really interesting detail. All right, folks, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today, as I just mentioned, I'm joined by Levi Morgan. And Levi, if you're not familiar, is quite possibly the most accomplished archer in the world today. Uh, On the archery tournament circuit, the latest numbers I've seen show him being named the shooter of the year 10 times. I think it was 10 times in a row, actually. And he's also won multiple world titles. And from a hunting standpoint... Levi's been all over the world hunting, including a lot of whitetail states. He's got a lot of whitetail experience, and himself and his wife, uh, they host the Bow Life TV show. So today, my conversation with Levi is going to be split into two halves. First, we're going to take some time to talk about his 2017 hunting season and some of the different lessons he's learned uh, from a deer hunting perspective, some different ideas from a tactic and strategy standpoint that might be helpful to everybody, and then secondly, We're going to take some time to dive deep into archery, which is something that Levi is especially and uniquely, um, I think, uh, prepared to talk about and help us better understand. So we're going to get his perspective on bow setups and arrows and accessories, um, how to practice better, different drills to try, um, different ways to improve accuracy, how to handle the mental aspects of bow hunting and shooting a bow, you know, handling the moment of truth, a lot of stuff along those lines. And uh, trust me on this one, you're going to enjoy it. I really enjoy this conversation. And usually at this point, this is where we would have our little pregame discussion between my co-host Dan and myself. But Dan couldn't make this episode, so we're just going to have to put off our dad life conversation till next time. And uh, speaking of dad life, well, you know what? Actually, I guess for those of you who don't follow Wired to Hunt on Instagram or Facebook. I'm just gonna I'm gonna make you guys wait it out another week before we talk about anything related to um, my life outside of hunting. 
We've got a little bit of news, but me and Dan will talk about it here next time. And I guess speaking of that, I will use this as an opportunity for some shameless plugs here since we've got a little time. Um, speaking of social media, if you're not following Wired to Hunt on social media, please go ahead and go do that. That is the best way to stay up to date on what I've got going on, new things coming out from Wired to Hunt, uh, interesting things going on in my hunting and outdoor adventures. So Facebook is a great place to find that. You're going to have the Wired to Hunt Facebook page, Wired to Hunt on Instagram. That is one of my most active platforms. And lately I'm doing a lot of Instagram stories where I'm sharing, um, especially right now in the off season, I'm going back and looking back on some of my hunts and adventures from the past year. And I'm sharing kind of little photo stories. And that's kind of a neat way to recap some of these recaps some of these things I've done. So be sure to check out my Instagram account and Twitter. Um, you'll get all sorts of updates there as well. Speaking of plugs, if you wouldn't mind, if you've got the time, if you could leave a rating or review on iTunes, it would be incredibly appreciated, very, very, very helpful, and does not take much time at all. You can do it in 30 seconds, a minute. Just let us know what you think about the podcast. Let other people know what you think about the podcast. Um, that can help us do better things and connect with the right people. So thank you in advance for doing that. So with all that out of the way, let's take a very short break here for our Sitka Gear story of the day, and then we're going to get right into this very interesting conversation with Levi Morgan. For this week's Sitka story, we're joined by Darton Harwick, who tells us about his hunt for a triple beam buck. So it was the second day of rifle season in Pennsylvania. Uh, I just came home from work, and I went into the garage and talked to my grandpa a little bit, and I decided since it was about an hour left before dark, I would go out for a little while. And I went to a spot where I know deer like to cross this ravine. And I just stood on the four wheeler path there and, uh, across the ravine, there's a field and the buck actually came out on the far side of that field where my stand from opening day was at, because I was knew I was hunting his whole core area. But, uh, I settled in and I pulled the trigger and just dropped the buck right there in the field. And I was real pumped up. On Darton's hunt, he was wearing Sitka Stratus system. If you'd like to create a Sitka story of your own, or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit sitkagear.com. All right, with me now on the line is Levi Morgan. Welcome to the show, Levi. Hey, Mark. Thank you. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be on here. Yeah, absolutely, and definitely appreciate you taking the time to do it and before before i gave you a call gave our listeners just a little bit of a background as to some of your accomplishments and what you're doing these days but i'd love to hear about that from you before we go any further can you kind of give us the story of how you got to this point where you're, you're hosting your own show you're one of the top archers in the world um and at a, at a darn young age uh how did this all happen uh, you know, my dad was a big bow hunter. That's kind of where it all started. Uh, when I was five years old, um, I started kind of tagging along with him, going to local 3D shoots and uh, just slinging arrows and, and started winning local tournaments. And um, then from there, I guess dad just saw something in me and, you know, wanted to kind of take that to the next level. So we, when I was six, we went to a world championship in Flatwoods, West Virginia, the IBO world championship. And I tied for first there. And so it just kind of, you know, fell in love with the game of, of archery, I guess, you know, dad was a huge bow hunter, but I, I love competition and have since, well, heck I was five or six years old. So I fell in love with that part of it and then just won a lot as an amateur growing up and 
Um, when I turned 18, I um, just decided to dive in head first and turn pro. And uh, yeah, one shooter of the year at 19, world championship at 19, and just kind of went from there. But the, the passion that always drove it was, was bow hunting. And so um, I wanted to do something that, because I was, I, when I was 20, 21, me and Samantha were just getting together. We had house payments and everything was riding on winds and I had to win to, to pay our bills and it was <laughs> pretty stressful. And so, <laughs> you know, I wanted something that, you know, we could actually kind of have a budget and, and make a living still doing what we loved. And the support I had from that allowed us to kind of move into the TV side of things, which Lord thinking that was a stable job was, uh, kind of, funny now looking back but (laughs) we've been we've been very blessed and kind of here we are you know 10 years or no see this is my 12th year as a pro this year so the time's flying by wow if if you had if you had to pick one of the two if someone put a gun to your head and said you could only be a professional tournament archer or you could only be a bow hunter in a tv show to make your living if you had to choose one of those two what do you think no, you'd have the to choose? Easiest question. Yeah, bow hunting, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, I, you know, I shoot tournaments and enjoy the competition, but I love the bow hunt. I'd bow hunt every day. It never gets old. I miss it as soon as the last day of the season comes around. So, I would definitely choose bow hunting. Uh, that would be a really easy choice for me. <laughs> I think that was a, that's a good answer. <laughs> so, how did this how did this uh, 2017 <laughs> season go for you? It was awesome. We started um, up in Northwest Territories because I am chasing the Super Slam. When I won um, the eighth shooter of the year in a row a few years ago and broke that record, I that was kind of like a this record that had kind of hung over my head. And so when that was up, I was like, "What am I going to do now?" You know. And so I decided I wanted to chase the Super Slam, and and so I started that trek and. So I've been trying to do some adventure hunts every year because I grew up a whitetail guy. That's all I have ever did. That's my favorite. You know, it's what I know. And, and on the East Coast, that's just what we did growing up. And yeah. so it was cool getting to go out and, you know, experience other parts of the world. So we started in Northwest Territories this year doing Yukon moose and uh, mountain caribou. Um, shot a really good moose and a good caribou there. So came home went to wyoming did muley antelope samantha killed a nice whitetail in wyoming and then we just started pounding whitetails and um i didn't kill anything giant or enormous this year but we shot a lot of really good deer and a lot of old deer so i've always been a quantity guy you know you got guys like lee and mark drury and shooting 200s all the time i'm just trying to kill as many as i can <laughs> yeah not, not all of us can can break the 200 mark every year that's for sure <laughs> right no doubt maybe one day i'll be able to pass at 150 up but yeah not at the moment <laughs> so so i i just went on my first caribou hunt uh, this past year too and that was a pretty incredible experience and, and now that you've been able to do more of these adventure hunts around the the country or the world um when you look at that compared to your bread and butter of your whitetail hunting, your background is whitetail still, right. still your absolute favorite or are these bigger adventures and wilder places starting to, to pull at you? You know, they're so different. I, I think whitetail will always be my favorite, but it adventure hunts is what I, I've been, I tell people, you know, like sheep hunts and mountain goats and all that. It's fun when you get home and you look back on it, you know, what the whole process of whitetail hunting, I love, you know, the scouting and, 
outsmarting them and growing them and running trail cameras. And it's just a really enjoyable, fun process. Sheep hunting is not that, you know, sheep hunting is work and, and just being mentally tough and or any adventure hunt for that matter, you know, putting one foot in front of the other and really a lot of miserable moments. Uh, <laughs> yep. But when you look back on it, you go, man, that was really cool experiencing that and that I stuck it out and I got it done, you know? And, and so that's just the difference I think in, in those two. Um, and so I really, I think it's made me appreciate and enjoy whitetail hunting that much more. You know, when I come off these mountains I, and it's time to go whitetail hunting, I'm just so ready to go sit in a tree all day, which sounds crazy to some people, but I, I love it. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can a hundred percent relate to that. I was having those same feelings after my September Alaska hunt and then I did a Montana hunt. And then all I could think about was, man, I can't wait to get to back to the Midwest and just sit in a quiet tree and kind of get back yep. to that normalcy a little bit, but it's all, it's all no incredible. Um, and I yeah. like your point about how a lot of those adventure hunts, it's, it's what I like to call, or I've heard people call it type two fun, you know, type one fun is like the stuff that's really nice and fun at the time. Like, maybe, I don't know, playing a basketball game or whatever it is that you like to do. It's yeah. easy and fun. And type two is the stuff that in the moment it's kind of miserable. But like you said, looking back on it, those are sometimes the very best memories because uh, you were able to push through that stuff. So, Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been on a couple of sheep hunts where I'm like, man, I don't know if I'm ever going to come back on one. You know, I don't know <laughs> if I can do it again. It's just rough. And so, and then you get home and you start looking at pictures a month later and you're like, oh man, you forget how, how tough it really was. And then you, you book another one. And <laughs> mm -hmm. So, so, <laughs> so of, just keep going. of those types of hunts, what's been the most fulfilling or your, or your favorite species outside of whitetails then? Um, you know, probably, probably either a mountain, the mountain goat I shot up in Northern BC or my, my stone sheep just because of what we had to go through to get it and and just the story behind the whole thing i guess but they're all so cool in their own way but those were the two phys most physically demanding hunts and the mountain goat my brother who runs camera for us a lot fell broke his arm the first day and and it was just you know it was just an experience and it's like i don't know if we're going to get it done so when we did get it done it was just uh an overwhelming relief and so that one's the one that stands out, wow. you know, a lot in my head. So yeah, C can you tell us that story? I'm I'm kind of curious to hear how that all yeah. happened. So I went hunting with actually a couple buddies of mine in BC who are outfitters for bear and moose, um, but love the mountain goat hunt themselves. And so I got a tag for a different outfitter and went with those guys, Marty and Darren, um, with BC and Beyond uh, Adventures up there. And so we went and found a bunch of big goats, but it was like in northern BC, a little town called Chetwind, uh, British Columbia, where we were at. And so we went and we were three hours from, well, no, two hours in a truck, three hours on, on a four wheeler. And then we hiked for another three hours to even get into the goats to glass. And it's like 10 degrees, a foot of snow on the ground literally the most treacherous stuff like you you could imagine i had no idea you know and marty's like a little mountain goat himself he's all over these rocks i'm six foot four 210 pounds and so it was um it was interesting and so we hunted all day actually got in on some really really big goats and didn't get it done and just couldn't get close enough so we were coming out in the dark um that night i mean we were just 
forever to get back. And, uh, we all wished we would have took a tent and just camped up there on top because we found this big, like plateau. It would have been the most perfect spot to just camp and we could have hunted out of camp every day, but we did it. So we were hiking out and my brother's headlamp died. And so he was trying to walk between me and Darren. Um, so he would have light and we were just coming out of this big rock outcropping and, and, uh, his feet fly from under him and he's carrying like a 60, 70 pound pack with camera gear. And he tried to catch himself and his arm went between two big rocks and his body kept going and it just snapped his arm and it was nasty. And so we were still two months or two hours from the four wheelers and, you know, five hours from any hospital. And, and so at least, and it was like, geez, you know, so we just gave him some ibuprofen and wrapped his arm up in a shift sling and carried his stuff out. I mean, he was dry heaving and it was an interesting night. So we got him out of the hospital and, you know, kind of in, in, uh, situated and we all just took off back up the mountain the next day. And I was trying to teach my guide how to run a camera. And, and on day four, he ended up filming me shoot a goat. So it was, uh, it was interesting. <laughs> wow. That, that's the story, like the short version. Yeah, that, I think that I think that definitely qualifies as a type two event. No doubt about that one. Yeah, yeah. Man. And then we went and shot a black bear four hours south of there, and my brother filmed it with his broke arm, and it ended up being the largest black bear killed in British Columbia that year with a bow. And it was just a crazy week. You know, it was, you know, it was insane. So wow, that's pretty <laughs> impressive that he got back out there on the camera. <laughs> oh yeah, he was trying to go back up after goats, but I was like, nah. And after that, I kind of fired him for mountain hunts because um, <laughs> <laughs> he just always gets hurt. You know, Too he many fell falls. off a cliff on. Yeah, he fell off a cliff on, on my mountain lion hunt, and just he's all since he was a little kid, he just gets hurt everywhere he goes. So he's more of a whitetail. I like him white tail hunting, yeah. but I can't, he's my brother. So I'm constantly worried when we're on the mountain and something's going to happen. So a little bit of a liability. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Uh, so back to whitetails then, um, you said you, you hunted all over the place. It looked like I, I've been kind of following and seeing that, uh, you hunted, if I can remember, I saw Ohio, Arkansas, Mississippi, Oklahoma, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, was there anything across all these hunts that stood out to you this year as, as like a major lesson learned or maybe just something that was pounded home again for you? Did you come away from this season having any big aha? Yeah, I did. You know, I, um, I feel like I learned stuff all the time, but I had, you know, all being a white tail hunter growing up, just trained myself with archery tackle. If if the deer's over 30, you got to aim real low, you know, they're going to turn inside out, they duck, they, you know, you're always going to hit a deer higher than where you're aiming. So, this year, I mean, we were just everywhere we went, you know, it was hitting deer right right in the heart, which is a great problem. But normally, you know, I'm aiming bottom of the heart, heart, and hitting them in the lungs because they're dropping on us. And we just kept hitting them low in the heart and heart. And I'm like, man, I'm flirting with disaster down here. And I think we were coming home from Oklahoma because um, we did Ohio, um, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Kansas, Oklahoma, Mississippi, Arkansas, I think is how that went. But we were coming home from uh, uh, Oklahoma, and I said, man, we I want to go back through this footage this year and find out what's going on, why 
I feel like I'm hitting everything low, uh, lower than normal. And, and we just figured out the deer were not reacting. Um, I knew the, the new tracks, you know, it was the first year we shot it. And I went to a lower profile vein um, and four fletched it, which is a real quiet arrow, like in flight downrange. Um, and Randy Ulmer used to do that. He would do like a, he may still do that, like a real small six fletch um, vein. And it's because it's quiet and the deer don't hear the arrow, you know, buzzing through the air. So I went to a four fletch, smaller profile, plus the tracks is the quietest bow I've ever shot. And we just figured out these deer were not reacting to the arrow until it had already went past them. Um, and so I had to retrain myself while to not aim high, like up in the mid body, but aim a little higher, you know, cause well, I mean, I've trained, I've literally had to aim at the bottom belly line of some deer, you know, in the South growing up in North Carolina, those deer are wild. And if they're 40 yards and alert and you shoot at the lungs, you are going to miss them by a mile. So, um, yeah, just having to retrain myself a little bit with that tracks to aim a little higher than I was used to. So, so for people that maybe aren't familiar with this concept, you're talking about, you know, compensating for these deer that are jumping the string. So, so a buck hears that bow go off and then he, he kind of loads up to run away. And in that right, it kind right. of, he almost drops and lots of times when people shoot high. Um, so are you right. saying that you, you do this on every, in the past, you did this all the time to, to make sure you weren't having deer duck the air. You were always going to drop or aim low, even if they weren't alert. Yeah. Even if they weren't alert, I would do that. Like, in, unless they're close, you know, under 30 yards, really the bows was fast enough where they couldn't react a lot. But, um, past 30, I would always aim heart, you know, like bottom third. And uh, that way, if he doesn't duck, I got him. If he ducks, you know, eight, 10 inches, I still hit top of the lungs. And so it was just, I was hitting everything like, you know, three inches up in the crease, bottom of the heart in the heart. And I mean, one little bobble at 50, 60 yards. And, you know, I was just flirting with disaster down there shooting low. And I, cause I'm so used to them dropping, loading up to run and hitting six inches higher than where I'm aiming, you know, at 50 yards. So it was a little bit of a learning curve for me with that new bow, um, just in a testament to that thing of how quiet it is too. And I, I was, uh, I was pretty shocked cause we've been shooting deer for uh, 25 years and I've always had to aim low. <laughs> yeah. Now that's interesting to hear that. Uh, I just got my triax and haven't used it in the field yet, but, uh, that's going to be interesting and, and something I'm going to have to keep in mind too, for this coming season. Um, and I'm glad you brought it up too, for, for people that are shooting something else, that's probably, you know, a little, a little louder. It's always a good reminder to be careful and, and, and to be kind of preparing for that string jump and aiming at that bottom third seems to be something that more and more people are realizing they've got to do for those longer shots. Yeah, it is. Yeah, hundred percent. And I mean, it's still a great idea. Even if you think your bow is so quiet that they're not going to hear it, you still don't want to aim mid body. I mean, I was, you know, I think the perfect spot is top of the heart. You know, if you can break, if you can be perfect, that's the perfect spot, you know, because most deer can't react enough to duck the arrow that would be going to hit him in the heart, you know, and that way, if he doesn't move, you still got him. But yeah, it's just where I was aiming, I was flirting with, with shooting too low. So yeah. So, so speaking of flirting with disaster, um, at least for me, every year I make a handful of mistakes that I look back on and cringe a little mm-hmm. bit. Did you make any mistakes this year that you, that like stand out and you're saying that yeah, that was a doozy and you can learn from it? 
Oh gosh, I'm trying to think. I, I thought I make a lot of mistakes, you know. Maybe not shooting wise, but um, hunting wise, I did for sure. I, I do it all the time. I, I have a problem being way too aggressive white tail hunt, and uh, you know, I think I get a deer figured out. I move right in on them, and so the main reason is. I'm, as I normally show up at a lease or something, I got seven days, you know? And so, um, this year in Illinois, it kind of paid off. I didn't really, didn't really, I think learn my lesson. Maybe it's aided in the aggressiveness, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I normally learn a lot of lessons by being too aggressive this year. It seemed like every time I did that, I killed a deer. So it's probably going to hurt me next year. Um, but that's probably my biggest, thing i have to try to reel myself in when i'm deer hunting to scout more than i hunt and you know hang observation stands and watch instead of going oh i got these deer pecked i'm gonna move right in on them you know because uh that's bit me in the butt several times on real real big deer in the past i get real anxious and and get too aggressive on them so 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 what is your typical process then for tackling one of these quick you know seven day hunts on a property that you know is maybe out of state that you're not able to be on a whole lot um how do you go about doing that how do you balance that scouting and hunting when do you strike i'm curious about that well it's you know most of these places we have hunted for years um and have history with and we run cameras on pretty much year round so the first thing we do when we get there is is find out you know what cameras we can get to with whatever the wind is and let the least intrusive as possible and pull cards and kind of see what what's going on where um that paired with you know past history of the place um and you know we already we go hang sets in the summer and try to have all that done you know major pinch points a lot of times we're still running and gunning and hanging in the rut anyway if we see something two or three times um but you know that's kind of the way it is we'd really try to you know let our cameras do most of the scouting for us um and then just move in when the when the wind and the you know the weather is right um or just when you got seven days you kind of got to go in anyway and you know what we would do is, is pull cards and if there's nothing really solid that we can lock in on we'll go sit somewhere where we can see a long way see a lot of you know where the does are at if it's the rut or you know, you know, it just depends. It's just, every situation seems to be so different. Early season, you know, it depends on if the acorns are falling and, and, and where and if they're hitting beans or if they're dried up and they're already all in standing corn. <laughs> the whitetail, I think that's why I fell in love with them so much is that it's never-ending what, you know, battles and situations you're faced with to, yeah. to try and find a big mature buck, you know. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. I saw um, that you had a situation, I think it was in Pennsylvania, correct me if I'm wrong, but I saw that you had a target buck that you were hunting in Pennsylvania, I think you called him Boswell, and um, yep. and then someone else ended up shooting that buck, and it kind of, I could relate to that because the last three years I've been hunting one buck here in Michigan, and it looks like he, he probably got killed by another guy. So how did you, how did that story with Boswell go for you? And how did you kind of process the fact that someone else got him and that hunt was done for you? Well, it was, um, you know, PA, I hadn't really hunted a whole lot. When we moved here, we bought, you know, a house and 25 acres. And I've shot, hunted one evening behind my house four years ago and shot a nice, you know, 125 inch nine point. And 
I just really haven't hunted Pennsylvania since. I just kind of watched and didn't have a deer I wanted to go after. And so I met a guy in this local area that owned a lot of ground. Um, and he didn't really hunt a lot, just a couple of days in rifle season. And a super nice guy um, gave me permission to hunt one of his farms. And it was the, kind of the first time I had really ventured out here since we moved here to try and find a buck to hunt this year. Main reason being Samantha was pregnant and due in October, or she was due November 8th. So I knew I was going to be home in prime whitetail. Oh, that is time. And some so timing. I wanted, yeah, it's perfect, right? <laughs> so I wanted to be, I wanted to be, you know, kind of set up and, and have a deer to go after those last few weeks, October, leading into November when I knew I was going to have to be home. And so um, he had, a, you know, a little 90 acre track that was really good and it was like 10 minutes from my house. So I kind of went and keyed in on that. And, and, uh, literally the second deer I got a picture of was a deer we ended up naming Boswell and he was just an incredible deer, um, 24 inches inside 160 inch, you know, eight point clean eight, just a giant and, wow. um, had like 10 inch brows and I named him Boswell because we're Steeler fans and his, his, um, brow times look like huge field goal posts and Boswell's <laughs> the field goal kicker for the Steelers. So nice. That's how he got that name. But <laughs> yeah, so I knew right then I was going, I was going to spend my entire, you know, late October, November on that, that buck. And we, we passed a lot of good deals there. Um, and never laid eyes on him. Um, I saw, I, I had him on camera so many times, you know, and, and I had him coming into this big green field every evening at like, 10 minutes till dark to 10 minutes after dark. And it was really hard to get in there without blowing a bunch of deer out. And the main thing was after the hunt was over, if I didn't get him killed, I would have to blow the field out to get out. So I didn't even go in there. I was waiting on perfect weather, perfect conditions. And I was going to go in and I would have one or two chances to kill him on that spot before I blew it. And I remember October 25th, um, me and Mike got up. And we went to a stand probably two or 300 yards off the screen field, just trying to catch him going back into the bedding area. Um, cause we had started getting some daylight, real random daylights of him and didn't kill him that morning, but the temperature was dropping and it was the first cold front of the year, really. And it was going to be like a high 45 that day. And I looked at Mike and I said, we're going to kill Boswell tonight. And I was just knew it. I was so confident he was going to be in that green field way before dark and, got out to the truck my phone rang samantha was going into labor and so <laughs> literally rushed home went to the hospital we had jackson uh, like two weeks early come home three days later go pull cars and he was all over it an hour before dark every morning every evening he was everywhere in the daylight by this time it was hot again he's back to his right at dark pattern and, and so i hunted him hard till november 6th and then we ended up leaving to go to Illinois, hunted there for a few days. And when I came home, season was closed. I think it closed on the 11th here in PA this year. And so I knew, I was like, well, I'm going to, you know, late season when it gets cold, I'll, I'll try to key in and kill him. And so rifle season comes in like, I don't know, what's that, right after Thanksgiving. Yeah. And Boswell, of course, had been everywhere on the farm daylight but the season closed um for archery and we couldn't hunt him and it was kind of brutal but so rifle season's in and jason the landowner um is is hunting a little bit in rifle season and so he 
kind of called me a little discouraged um, about two days into rifle season. Said, "Man, I haven't seen a buck. I've, I've not seen anything. You know, I, I just don't feel like there's any bucks on the farm." And so I was like, "I'll go run run a few cameras and see what's there." And and uh, went out there, and man, I had him. He was coming every day, and I just wasn't gun hunting. And so, I, and I was because I was afraid if I went in there and, and tried to kill him in gun season. PA is like Michigan. There's so many hunters that if you were to push him to a neighbor, he's dead yeah. that day, you know? Yeah. So I was like, I'm not going in there in gun season. I'm not doing it. So I just kind of slipped and pulled a couple cards for Jason and he was all over it in the daylight. I, I called him at probably 1231 and said, Hey man, I said, there's a giant and he's, you know, he's coming out back into this green field every night, you know? And, so he rushed home, jumped up in a box blind and shot him right before dark and, and <laughs> called me, you know, and, and, uh, I was so pumped for him. He's, he's very unselfish guy to let me hunt his farm all year. And so I definitely wasn't gonna keep info from him, you know? And, and, uh, so I was happy for him that he got him and it was cool. He called me and let me come out and we kind of helped in the recovery and it was cool to hold him, you know, after hunting him all year long. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. But that's the story of Boswell. <laughs> <laughs> Heck of a story. Got to be a little bittersweet. I, I know that feeling, but uh, like you said. Yeah, it was. I mean, obviously, you put so much energy into a deer and, and uh, could have killed him several times, just didn't. You know, he zigged and zagged the right way and just wasn't meant to be. That's what keeps us coming back for him, though, right? The fact that that's it's right. so that's darn right. frustrating and tricky sometimes and the few times it does come yep. together makes it all worthwhile. So, oh, I know I didn't. He was killable, man. I mean, he made mistakes. I just wasn't there when he did it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you, you you've hunted everywhere from Pennsylvania, where there's tons and tons of hunting pressure, to places out in Kansas or Oklahoma, where maybe there's not as much pressure. You've been north and south, all over the place yeah. in whitetail country. Um, if there were any big picture, maybe one or two overarching like principles that you could take and show to a guy or girl who wants to take that step from becoming like an average deer hunter to becoming, you know, a consistent, you know, killer, a mature buck, someone who wants to take that next step, what would be the one or two big things you would say that, you know, might be able to help them do that? Well, I think, um, pressure is, is the main thing is, um, because those big bucks will pattern you just like you're patterning them. And, um, access is access and pressure is what I have learned on big white tails is, is the only way to kill them. Um, you have to watch how you get in and out, um, to your stands and you have to really limit the pressure on his core area. Um, I mean, if he's living on your farm or if you think, you know, right where this buck is bedding and feeding, you literally don't want to hunt him until it's perfect. And, and I like to hunt edges and real, real, I like to hunt edges when I have time, like, and, and not go straight and blow in there. Like I was talking about earlier, but when you have five or six, seven days to hunt, you kind of have to get in there and hunt. And I, that's where I was saying, I've made a lot of mistakes and been way too aggressive. So I think if you're hunting a farm that you are going to hunt all year, you live in, and it's your home state. I think like I did with Boswell this year, I, I played it really perfect. I think as far as I didn't pressure him. I didn't go in there and blow him out of his bed and area. He was so comfortable, even in the middle of rifle season, because we had we had not pressured him at all. We didn't, never jumped him, never went into his bedroom. So, 
um, I think that's that was key. We just weren't there when he came out in the daylight, you know, and so almost probably wasn't aggressive enough with him. But I think um, pressure and access, you you got to have a way in and out without blowing the deer out. And, and that's that's the same no matter where I hunt, everywhere we go. If we don't have good access, we can hunt a stand one or two times and it's no good anymore, you know, and it takes two weeks for that stand to be back even close to normal again with deer activity. So, yeah. Yeah. So when it comes to choosing the right times to, to go in there after them, choosing the right times to put that pressure on, uh, I've talked to so many different people and everyone has different things that they key in on. Some guys are all about the temperature. Some guys are all about the moon. Some, some people it's some combination of all the above and barometric pressure and all sorts of other things. Um, what are the things that you key on the most to tell you that now is the time to strike? I think time of year and obviously, um, you know, weather, uh, is, is huge for me. I, I, the moon, I've killed so many deer on a full moon, so many big deer that I just, I love hunting in full moon. Um, I will literally, it, you, I think you get real random hours of deer movement on a full moon. It could be at daylight. It could be at 10, it could be at one. You just never know when he's going to come out. But, um, I think the time of year, um, and weather and weather is going to pretty much trump everything else in my opinion, you know, I like high pressure, sunny days and, and, you know, obviously November the, the eighth, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, obviously, I mean, that's uh, ideal, but I mean, yeah, I would say weather and uh, time of year would be the two most important factors of that for me, yeah. uh, determining how aggressive I'm going to be. And, and obviously, you know, cameras, you know, if, if the deer's done the same thing every day for a week, then. I don't have a problem with going in there at all, you know, and, and being aggressive, no matter what temperature, weather, or anything. Yeah. How do how do you? Sometimes check? you just get deer that that want to die. <laughs> I'd like to find more <laughs> of those. And they do it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> how do you how do you go about using those cameras and checking those cameras without putting too much pressure on those deer? I feel like that's always a really delicate balancing act. How do you how do you do that? Yeah. I well, you know, we we'll run cameras, you know, deep in some, some bedding areas, but we don't ever check them. You know, um, we check them literally if we go in and hunt and have perfect conditions, we'll pull a card, get out of there. Um, and just see, but we run most of our cameras on food, um, just to kind of get an inventory of where they're feeding. And, and, um, we try to run them on, like if we have a field or a, you know, a destination field, we'll run them on, you know, fence where the fence is down or, or, um, you know, trails in and out of that field, um, where we can get in there in the middle of the day and there's not deer feeding in the field normally and pull those cards and uh, get out. And the best way to do that is, is on, uh, some kind of equipment, whether it be a, you know, a Polaris Ranger or a tractor or a truck, you know, because deer don't really associate those with, with danger for some reason. But if they see you on foot, Oh, that's a different story. Um, so we try to do everything as far as pulling cards right out of the truck or a tractor or, or something if possible and ride right up to the camera and the deer, even if they're bedded 40 yards in there, don't seem to really pay it much attention, especially in the Midwest. So, yeah, I've definitely, definitely seen the same things. And I think that that applies to access as well. 
Um, would you yeah. agree? Like I know a lot of guys and I've found success with this recently too. Sometimes in a situation like that greenfield example you shared earlier, where if you hunted right in the edge, you'd blow all the deer out. I've had some situations like that where I was on a field edge, had to be there. So I'd have someone come pick me up in a four wheeler or something and blow the yeah. deer off the field rather than you on your feet doing that. A hundred percent. I've sat in a tree for oh, an hour after dark, maybe longer waiting on somebody to get there in a truck. If I had a big deer, I was hunting come in, you know, and so uh, it was, that's, you know, always better because those deer will be right back out there the next night where if they watch you climb down out of a tree, it's not going to be the case. <laughs> yeah, you can't, you can't get away with that too many times. No, no. All right, well, we are going to switch gears here in a second, but before we do that, let's take a quick minute here to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties, and here with our Whitetail segment of the day from Whitetail Properties is Spencer Newharth. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Andrew Schultz, a land specialist out of Illinois, and Andrew is going to be telling us about how shopping for land in the winter is different than other times of year. You know, there's lots of differences, but the main difference is the foliage that's um, out on these properties. So with the lack of foliage, it's great for being able to walk around that property, um, see deer sign from the past season, uh, really get an idea for what trees are on the property, uh, what types of species of uh, plant life and and animals are using the property. And so uh, that's going to be the the best reason for looking at ground in the wintertime versus the summer or spring when there's uh, you know leaves on all the trees, it's hard to see, it's hot, there's mosquitoes, there's ticks, uh, might not be quite as enjoyable of an experience. Um, if it's me, I'm picking the cold weather and I'm learning everything I can about that property after uh, most of the hunting seasons are over and you can see a lot of the property. Um, that's my favorite time to walk a farm to really and truly learn a lot about it and um, do so fairly easily. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Andrew currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash Schultz. That's S-C-H-U-L-T-Z. So what, what about this, Levi? Do you think that bow hunting makes you a better tournament archer or that tournament archery makes you more of a Bow, better bow hunter. So, which of those is more true? Which has a Definitely better impact? a tournament archer. Tournament archer makes you a better bow hunter for sure. Why, um, why is that? I don't. Well, because you know when we're out there shooting, we have to learn how to. You know, we shoot under pressure all the time, um, and so you learn what you do wrong under pressure, and you learn how to shoot through the pressure. You can't ever get rid of it, but you learn how to shoot through it. And so, I think with bow hunting you don't feel that near as much you know you may hunt you know a month a month and a half before you feel that buck fever kick in because that that target buck is coming in and so you that's the first time your heart's been pounding through your chest you know all season where in tournaments we feel that every week and we feel that constantly and we shoot in that constantly and you just can't get away from it so you learn how you learn what you do wrong in those situations and you learn how to shoot really well um, when your heart's beating out of your chest and your pin's shaking a little bit, you know. So I think it has definitely helped me um, bow hunting 100%, you know, in those high-pressure moments where, you know, it's, you know, this is it. This is maybe the last day, and this is the biggest buck you've ever seen, and you get one shot, you know, and that's a lot of pressure. And for people that don't ever feel that, 
they don't know, you know, how they're going to react in that situation. They don't know how they shoot in that situation. And, and so, it, you know, it could end up being a really, really big deal, you know, where a, a tournament archer feels that all the time, you know, so definitely help me be a better bow hunter. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Can you can you talk about what that process has been like for you, you know, as you've gone through your tournament archery career as far as the mental side of handling that pressure? I mean, were you always just ice cold and it never bothered you or did you have some challenges with this and you've had to work through it and and if so, how how have you been able to handle the mental pressure of of these moments? Right. Yeah, no, I think in the beginning, you know, um I didn't have too much expectation. So my nerves never really got to me. Um, I was just trying to hang, you know? And so, um, I won a few tournaments, literally kind of like the saying, ignorance is bliss. I I didn't even know how important they were, you know, in the beginning because I was just having fun and, and, uh, really had no expectations. But then when you start winning a couple of tournaments, mine, the the most pressure I I experienced really, and it was kind of in the middle of my career uh, up to this point. Um, I started winning and then people started expecting me to win. And then I started expecting to win and expectation creates so much pressure. Um, when you go to a tournament and you know, everybody's watching every arrow you shoot and, and you start thinking about it. Um, that was tough for me to deal with. I, you know, I, I did it and I fought through it. And I have man had some challenges mentally, um, just holding it together a few times because of that, you know, cloud that kind of follows you around when you win um and so i think now you get to a point where you feel like you don't have anything to prove really and so i kind of broke through that and i feel like i've won enough that i don't you know i can have a bad day and and nobody thinks my career's over you know and so for a while it was like you hadn't won enough to really prove yourself so don't let people think it's a fluke kind of mentality, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so now I feel like I don't have that, but you know, there's always that cloud of expectation and I make myself way more nervous now uh, than anybody else could just because I demand perfection out of myself at tournaments and you just can't be perfect um, when it comes to shooting a bow. And so I, I'm constantly pressuring myself to be better and better, but I think that's what drives all of us, you know, in, in tournament archery or in any competition. If you get satisfied, you start going backwards real quick because there's some 19 year old kid that wants it as bad as I did when I was when I was that age right now. So yeah. So is there anything that you that you figured out during that time period or that you learned or someone told you, hey, think about this, or was there a a practice or anything that, that helped you develop that mental toughness or the ability to, to handle those moments. I mean, for, for people listening, I'm curious, you know, how can we become better from this mental aspect? Right. Yeah. hundred percent. The, the main thing that I had to learn was, you know, and it goes for bow hunting or shooting tournaments is you focus on the process. Don't focus on the end result. Don't focus on what it means, you know, to this arrow means don't focus on, you know, how big this buck is and, and don't choke and, and, you know, how important this tournament is. You just focus on the process. So you need a system. Um, and so what I always said was no matter what your goal is, you know, you can't just keep looking at that goal and that, you know, putting your pressure on yourself to, to reach that goal. You have to look at all the steps it's going to take to get there and then break that down into little baby steps and you accomplish one small goal and then move on to the next step. Okay. And the next step and the next step. And if you focus on the process, 
it takes so much pressure off of you um, in the long run. And when the smoke settles, you'll wake up and, and you've reached your goal, you know. And so uh, a lot of times, and sometimes not, but that's just the nature of competition and that's going to be the nature of bow hunting. It doesn't always work perfectly, but if you focus on the process, it takes a ton of pressure off of you to perform. And, and so you're more focused on doing that one little task right than how important this overall picture is. And so when that big buck's coming in, if all you're thinking about is don't screw this up, then you're naturally going to screw it up. So you have to take a system of steps, you know, whether that's, all right, let's okay, get my grip right, you know, let's pull back and make sure my bubble's level and put the pin here and be aggressive and pull, you know, fluent. Just have a, a system of steps in your head um, that takes your mind away from those negative thoughts. And that's kind of been the big thing for me mentally is, is to focus on the process instead of, you know, how important that shot is. Yeah. And maybe maybe you just told us this, but could you walk us through your exact shot process when it comes to in the field there's a deer coming in what exactly are you is going through your mind and what exactly are you doing all the way from that beginning to the end right so i you know my mind is when a deer's coming in it's you know kind of situational but like i'll just take this last you know deer i shot down in arkansas for example okay so it's late and we got one night left in the season and literally five minutes of light left so when I see a deer coming, I'm literally first thing in my hand is my rangefinder, and so to keep my mind off of anything, I'm constantly clicking stuff in front of this deer and and keeping my mind on how far he is, how far he is, how far he is, and literally that. If you can do that, that takes your mind off of everything else. If you're focused on how far that deer is, and that's been a big thing for me, is just keeping my mind focused on every step he takes trying to click him again and click him again and and so or and if he's walking down a trail i'll go in front of him when it's almost time for the shot i'll I'll follow that down click something close to where he's going to be and then i'm constantly focused on how far he is so if he's a, a yard on the other side two yards on the other side of that tree that's all i'm thinking about and then when i come to full draw this goes for tournaments or hunting all i focus on is aiming and I tell myself that, just aim, just aim, just aim. And, and so in practice, you have to really do some drills to focus on just aiming. And the release, honestly, will just fire if you shoot enough. You should never be thinking about firing that release or firing the bow. You should literally focus on aiming. And that's just a subconscious movement um, because, you know, coaches and the Olympic coaches and all these smart people will tell you that, you can only consciously think about one thing at a time. You can't consciously think about more than one thing, but your subconscious is pretty amazing how many things you can do subconsciously. So when I'm shooting a bow, all I am thinking about is aiming and everything else just kind of happens. And and that's what you got to get to, um, to be, you know, kind of reach your full potential as as an archer or, or anything for that matter. When you come to full draw, you should never think about anything except keeping that pin on, on target. I um I recently this past year kind of came to terms with the fact that I have had some tendencies and I, and I never used to label it this way but I've kind of came to the realization that it probably is some form of target panic. Um so right. this summer I started trying to change 
the, the way I shot my bow so that I was using more of a back tension type pull through, um, process versus just, you know, punching with an index finger. Um, so that's something I'm kind of still learning and trying to figure out and get better at. Can you walk us through how someone can deal with that issue, deal with that target panic or that trigger punching and, and what the proper way is to, to really do what you just said there, you know, focus on just aiming and have the bow go off almost without even thinking about it. How do you actually go from, okay, yeah, yeah, this is what I should be doing. How does someone actually go through the process of developing that habit and, and system? Right. So there's really mainly two drills and I was actually doing one of them here right before you called, but, um, the, the two main drills I would focus on, no matter if you have target panic or not, is blank bailing and then just an aiming drill. So what I feel like the best drill anybody's ever could do that has target panic is um, what I was doing earlier. And I don't have target panic, but I literally it helps you no matter where you're at in archery, you know, <laughs> bow hunting. So what I do is I, I was at 20 yards and I pull back and I would literally just, I'd put my thumb on the trigger because I shoot a thumb button. And I would lay my thumb on the trigger and just aim and try to hold that pin so still in the middle until my shot started to break down and shake. And then I would let up. And so I would take a breath, take a few minutes, pull back, do it again. And just doing that over and over without firing the arrow. So what you're doing is telling yourself, hey, I'm in complete control here. I don't have to fire this shot as soon as my pin gets to the middle. Um, so you're easing that, your mind and that anxiety of firing that shot as soon as your pin touches what you want it to hit, um, which is target panic, you know? So it just, it really does is relax you. And while you're doing that, you're building your stamina and how long you can aim in the middle. And so the longer, the more you do that, you start being able to aim there longer before your shot breaks down. And so that is probably the best drill in archery is to never fire an arrow and just do that over and over. And if you have target panic, I would say to anybody that has target panic, do that in the off season for two, three weeks and never fire a shot. Lay your finger on the trigger and aim where you want to hit and lay it down when your shot starts to break down and just keep doing it over and over every day, however long you would practice. And then you're going to be pretty amazed when you go back out there to shoot, how relaxed you are. You pull back and aim and you're going to be able to lay your finger on the trigger and make a good clean shot. Um, and so the other drill I would pair with that is called blank bailing. And most people have probably heard of that, but it's where you walk up to a target, you know, two or three yards, pull back, put the pin on it where you can't miss, close your eyes, and then just picture your dot being, or your pin being in the middle and slowly apply pressure to your release till it fires. Just good fluent pressure, not super, super slow, but just steady pressure each shot over and over. Till, so you feel what that perfect release that surprise release feels like um and then if you pair those two drills together um when you combine them and go out to shoot you're going to be amazed at how much more comfortable and how much more fluent and your timing and everything is going to be so much better with your shot so those are two of the best drills that you can do as an archer yeah, it's uh, funny you mention those. I think uh, the guys that have been helping me deal with my issues must be listening to a lot of what you say because those are exactly the things that I've been been working on myself. <laughs> um, that's good. Man. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Your message is getting out there, and it's it it makes a lot of sense. Um, is there any are there any other things when it comes to how we practice? Are there any other things you would recommend, or other drills, or other? Um, things that you think about or do while practicing, you know, a lot of guys, I think, you know, go out late summer, 
start flinging a few arrows at 20 yards and they kind of call it good. And obviously that's right. not ideal. Um, can you, can you walk us through some better practice habits? Yeah, I think you need to set goals in practice just like anything else. I mean, I think if you go out and shoot at the same four or five inch circle every day or dot every day, then you're never going to get any better. You know, I mean, you can say, yeah, I'm a bow sided in, but it's time to go hunting, you know, and, and, uh, that may be true, but if you really want to be the best you can be, you need to set goals in practice as well. And one thing that, you know, you can do is either move back is what, uh, you know, I think is the, is the best way is to practice shooting at distances way further than you're going to be shooting hunting. Um, because that shows all your mistakes. Everything is magnified. You know, we, I practice a ton at a hundred yards because if you make the tiniest mistake at a hundred, you miss by a foot. And so whenever I shoot a lot at a hundred yards, um, and get to where I'm shooting really good at a hundred and now I move back up to 40. It's like, you feel like you can't miss, you know, you feel like this is the easiest shot of all time. And so what I like to tell people is if, okay, what's your max distance hunting? They're like, well, I won't shoot a deer over 30 yards or I won't shoot a deer over 40 yards. Um, I say, okay, well then why don't you practice at 60 or 70 yards? There's nothing unethical about shooting at a bag target at 60 yards, you know? So just keep shooting and shooting until you, you're starting to get some decent groups of 60 yards. And so then you move back to 40 and, and that used to be your max distance. And so most people will only practice up to where their max distance is. They're going to shoot an animal. But if you do that, it's always going to be a hard shot. It's always going to seem hard because it's your max distance. So if you practice, you know, double your max distance and get pretty good, then you go in the woods and the buck walks out at 40. You're going to be like, I can't screw this up. You know, this is, this is a piece of cake, you know, so it really changes your mental game as well as um, makes you fine tune um, your mistakes and tighten your groups up. So I'd say practice um, further than, than what you're comfortable, make yourself a little uncomfortable in practice and, and uh, it'll help you in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Definitely good ideas. Now, what about the actual shot um, or sorry, actual form? This is another thing. A lot of people maybe develop bad habits as far as how they hold their bow or how they anchor, different things along those lines. And I've seen a number of videos you've done and some different things you've put out there about, you know, specifically how you're approaching some of these different things. Can you walk us through a little bit about proper archery form, what we need to be thinking about, uh, all the different pieces of that? Yeah, honestly, form is it's pretty tough because there's really no right or wrong form in archery um there's there's ways to shoot a bow easier but the, the what i have experienced and, and learned over the years is that if you can do the same thing over and over and over again then it's right and is when it comes to form if you can repeat it over and over and over then it's right you know i get beat by guys that have horrible form if you were to say draw up the most perfect archery form and you draw that out they don't look anything like that and then they, you know, are some of the best archers in the world. So they, they are the best because they can repeat that form over and over and over. So I would tell you to find what's comfortable. And if you're just starting, yeah, let's get somebody that, that knows what proper form is. And that, and if I had to say, what, what is perfect form? It, it's straight lines. If you do, you want to work with straight lines. So shoulder width apart, your feet shoulder width apart, draw a straight line up. Your body should run straight through your head. No leaning, no you know, tilting or anything like that. And then your um, bow arm shouldn't be bent at all. It shouldn't be, um, or shouldn't be bent and it shouldn't be hyper extended, some, some kind of middle ground there. Um, 
um, and just a real relaxed straight arm is what we like to call it. But then your release hand, you want to draw a line down the arrow shaft at full draw, hit your release through your hand and out your elbow and be on the exact same plane. looks like one line from the side. Um, not your elbow down, not your elbow up in the air, you know, all that. Um, and that would be considered perfect form, relaxed grip. Uh, there's so many things that kind of go into form, but if you can find a system, a form, anchor, any of that, that you can do the same every single shot from one shot to the next and the next, then it's right. And, and I, I don't tell anybody your form's wrong. If they're struggling with their shot, maybe try to find uh, something that's easier for them to repeat. But um, yeah, that's the main thing. Archery is all about repetition. It's mm-hmm. being able to repeat the little things over and over. So yeah, I feel like there's really no no answer, no right or wrong answer to that. Uh, that said, though, are there any any form mistakes of any sort that that do consistently pop up that like mess up shots? I mean, one thing, like an obvious thing that people talk about a lot is you know uh, over gripping your bow and torquing shots a lot. Is there anything oh, yeah. else like that? Any other little things that stand out yeah 100 percent. you don't want to yeah if you grip your <laughs> gosh my buddy just dropped his bow on the floor anyway that's what you don't you don't want to drop your bow on the floor. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that can cause inconsistencies no yeah grip is obviously um you know if you do it the same every time great but you want to shoot a relaxed grip um and so what i like to do is tell people with the grip is you know thumb up in the air like you're giving a thumbs up turn your thumb to two o'clock straight back and you put it right on the grip of the bow and that's kind of the most repeatable grip that i've found um but the biggest thing i see with form flaws is draw lengths um, people have too long of draws and it creates bad habits and i, I see that more than anything is trying to get speed out of a bow um and their draw lengths is way too long and so that creates target panic because you're uncomfortable tons of tons of issues so if i was to say one thing that's the most important is having somebody fit you with a perfect drawing. And to be honest, that's going to fix almost all your form flaws. If your bow fits you perfect, because you have to be in a straight line if you anchor the right way and your drawing fits you. So that's the most important thing I can think of um, when it comes to form is having a bow that fits you absolutely perfect. Yeah. I went through that this year as well, trying to refigure out if my draw length was if I was having the exact same problem, I did some work to try to adjust the draw length to try to uh, get that better fit, and I think that definitely does help. So speaking of draw length and um, things along those lines, let's talk about gear a little bit. Um, how about, let's just start with the, the biggest piece of the picture here, which is your bow. What are some things that people should be looking at or paying attention to when it comes to buying a new bow? Because I think a lot of stuff sometimes in in the marketing we see maybe pushes us in one direction or another and we just hop on that because of the hype. Um, I don't know what, you know, the, the different specifics that might be, but what are the real things that matter when a guy or girl is going to pick a new bow? What should they be looking at that is most important? You know, most of the bows anymore are so good, you know, the top end bows are, but I think, you know, I don't know that people are going to look at the same things I look at because I work on them every day, but I'm looking at limb pockets um, and axles and cams because that's that's where you get movement out of bows, um, you know, 
and how those limb pockets are built and how those cams are spaced and built. And, and so I'll look at the design on a limb pocket and, and because I've struggled in the past years with, with, you know, that being where the movement was and, you know, but the, honestly, I haven't had a bow that I have looked at in the last couple of years that I see there's issues with, with any of that stuff. People are figuring that out. Manufacturers are figuring that out. So I think the most important thing for anybody going to buy a bow is feel. I think you need to shoot them and you need to feel what it's like and then feel, um, what the draw cycle is like, you know, how it anchors, how it hits into the back wall, because everybody likes a different feel. You know, some people like high let off with a hard back wall. Some people like spiral cams and, you know, low let off and a spongy wall. Um, it helps them aim better. So I think you got to figure out, you know, shoot all the bows that you, that pro shop will let you shoot and, and pick one that feels the best to you. And, and because honest to God, nowadays, all the top end bow manufacturers are making really, really solid products. And, and so, um, you gotta, you gotta figure out what, what you like the best and what feel you're looking for. Now, how about actual accuracy with a bow or forgiveness, which some people will say is something that will allow you to be more accurate. Um, there's a number of different factors related to bows that people typically say, if you get this, it's going to make this bow more forgiving. But I've heard other people argue some of these. Can you talk us through what a forgiving bow actually means and if that's you know what are the things we should be looking for if that's the kind of thing we're looking to achieve with our bow right yeah i mean if you shoot uh if you got a 31 inch draw and you're shooting uh, you know a 30 inch bow with a five inch brace height at 80 pounds and shooting 348 feet a second it's probably not a real forgiving bow <laughs> you know <laughs> but uh, no. you know you want you know it and brace height is all relative, you know, brace height was always the number, you know, that's what, you know, you can decide an axle to axle. That's how forgiving a bow is. But to be honest, axle to axle has really nothing to do with forgiveness anymore. I think, um, brace height is, is still pretty relevant, but it's all due or it's all based on your drawing. So forgiveness of a bow to me is being, you know, you take into consideration, you have a perfectly tuned bow and uh, which is everything and forgiveness is having a perfectly tuned bow but then you start looking at the actual design of the bow what makes it forgiving well for me i have a 30 and a half inch draw so the brace height is how long that's that arrow is on that string from the time i release it to the time it leaves the string so there's a gap there where that string is driving that arrow after you've released the shot before it actually leaves the string so brace height, the, the longer your brace height is, the shorter that span is that the arrow's on the string after you release it. So you're, you, there's the less movement, the less time you have to move off target, the less time anything you know has to go wrong. So that's kind of been the idea behind that's why brace, the bigger brace height is more forgiving. But if you have a 25-inch bow or a 25-inch draw and a 5-inch brace height, that's still way more forgiving than having a 31 inch draw and an eight inch brace height, you know? So <laughs> it's, um, that's all brace height means is, and that's why people say a longer brace height is more forgiving, but it, you, you know, it's all relative to, to draw length. So I shoot a six inch brace height and, and love it, you know, with a 30 and a half inch draw, it's just, it's speed. <laughs> There's so many things in archery that, 
it's a hard question to answer because speed also just plays into that because that's how long and how fast that you know releases to how big of a span you have before that arrow leaves the string so if you're shooting a real slow bow with a real short brace height it's going to be less forgiving than a fast bow with a long brace height so yeah there's there's a whole yeah. lot of different things that you can give or take and pick your poison um now what about this the if you had to choose, which one of these um, qualities of a bow would you view as the very most important from a bow hunting aspect? Would you rather have a fast bow, a forgiving bow, or a quiet bow? Which of those would be the absolute most important? I realize you'd like to have all, but if you had to pick just one. Forgiving, 100%, because we're not perfect. And, uh, you know, speed, I mean, depending on how slow, but if it was just an average bow, speed, uh, speed wise, it would be either speed or or forgiveness because um, you don't need quietness if your bow's fast enough. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> and, you know, and so, um, but forgive forgiveness is the most important of those three, I think, or accuracy is the most important of those three. Yeah. So you mentioned a few minutes ago that the most important thing for forgiveness is a well tuned bow. Can you right. walk us through? Um, maybe a couple things people can do to better tune their bows or if there's a few tuning mistakes you see a lot um can you give us a, a few thoughts on tuning yeah i think there's i think you know most people don't know how to tune their bows properly and most people on tv don't know how to tune their bow properly and they shouldn't shoot lighted knots because <laughs> uh, i get so frustrated watching hunting shows and their arrows you see this lighted knock it looks like somebody's using a sparkler down through the woods and it's mm-hmm. just going in circles because it and that is how you create a very unforgiving setup make it really hard on yourself you know i think you know a proper tune bow i we start literally from the ground up and i mean it would take hours to go through it but just real quick you know like paper tuning would be a basic thing somebody should learn how to do um you know youtube a video i've done on on how to paper tune um which gets your arrow coming out of that bow perfect your arrow flight's perfect you're shooting an arrow through a piece of paper and seeing if it's kicking at all coming out of that bow and so we go to the extent of doing that with no veins on the arrow so we're getting the actual reaction of that arrow with no guidance and getting one tiny arrow hole through paper. Then we put veins on it to stabilize it down range, you know, and so we're creating a setup that through a machine would never miss. And so then all you have to worry about is yourself. Um, so I think if you add into the play human error and your bow shooting groups the size of a pie plate, you're pretty much doomed at that point. So, but there is, you could take any, I could take any bow, you know, that's been built in the last five years and make it a really forgiving setup um, just by how you tune it, how you balance it. Um, so many things go into it, but you can literally build a very forgiving setup out of almost anything. So a big part of, of achieving a lot of this, I think, is that arrow setup too, I imagine. Um, and right. this, is, this is something that I, again, I think I need to do a better job of myself. I, I fell into the trap early on in getting an arrow, and it worked for me, and I just never messed with it. I was like, well, that works, it, or it seemed to work fine. And so I never really th- questioned or thought through, you know, why am I shooting this spine or this length or this or that. Um, can you walk us through what we need to be thinking about to properly match up our arrow with our bow setup and our goals? 
Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, the spines are, are, you know, the most important. And I shoot gold tip, and and I shoot either a 250 or a 300 spine for everything. I'm 31 inches, 70 pounds almost all the time. So um, what that is is, you know, how weak or stiff that arrow is. So, and, like, Samantha is 26-inch draw, 60 pounds, and she shoots a 500 spine arrow. So, you know, and I mean, you can look on the spine charts of all the arrows and find out kind of where you need to be, but, you know, the more, I, I kind of give you an idea of what affects that. So, like, you can take a four, I can take a 300 spine arrow, make it shoot like a 400 spine arrow if I put, you know, 300 grain point in the front of it because it weakens that, that spine up, you know. So, the the heavier an arrow is, on the heavier point you put in it, the weaker the spine gets. Um, and the longer you cut it or the longer you leave it, the weaker it is. So if you want to stiffen and narrow up and so through paper, a weak tear is a high tear. So if you get in a high tear and you can't get it out, you probably have a weak arrow. So what you can either do is cut some off of the arrow or put a lighter point in it or last case or worst case scenario, get a stiffer spine. Um, and vice versa, if you shoot through and you're knock low, a lot of times that's a stiff arrow and you're going to want to, you know, put more weight in the front of it, you know, cut it longer or get a, a weaker spine arrow, you know, and those definitely affect tune. Um, if, if I had to say which one was more forgiving, if you couldn't get it perfect, I would want a little bit of a weaker arrow than a too stiff, um, for your spine. Like if you're a little too weak, it's better than being, having an arrow that's too stiff, but obviously you want to get it perfect. Hmm. Now, what about diameter arrows? There's been a, a recent movement. A lot of people are shooting those much smaller diameter. Um, now, what are your thoughts on that? Why is that maybe a good thing to look at or not? Yeah, it is. I like small diameter arrows like the, you know, Pierce Platinums and, and just the tiny hunting arrows for penetration and they're tough and, and all that. I went back to shooting um, kind of a velocity, which is a standard diameter this past season. I just I have a lot of confidence in that arrow. It's just a solid all-around arrow. And I'm not a huge fan of outsuits, um, you know, which is the sleeve that goes on the outside of the arrow. And then you got to screw your arrow or your broadhead into that. And just a lot of things, a lot of components that have to go to together. Um, and it's hard to get them perfect. All the arrows the same. So I went back to shooting like a, a 246, a .246 diameter, which is like a pro hunter velocity, just kind of your standard hunting arrow and, and running inserts because I like the, the less things that can go wrong, the better. But I killed, you know, several animals with those Pierce Platinums last year, and they're a great arrow. I just I you know, figured less is more when it comes to that stuff. So I went to went back to shooting the, the velocity or this year. Um, the Valkyrie is actually the one I hunted with, and it was, it's probably my favorite hunting arrow I've ever hunted with. The, it comes pre-fletched, four-fletched with the low profiles like I was talking about before. So, Gotcha. All right, before we move on to uh, in the next question, I want to take our final break of the day and thank our partners at Maven Optics. And you may have seen this across Facebook or social media, but Maven has just announced that they're launching a new category of products for the brand this year, and that is rifle scopes and maven's been making binoculars and spotting scopes now for a while uh, but now with rifle scopes they've got a really appealing new option this scope has 2.5 to 15x zoom it has two different reticle options and has super high-end ed glass which is 
extra low dispersion glass. And what this means is that it prevents or minimizes chromatic aberration. And in layman's terms, that just simply means that you get a cleaner and brighter image and, of course, terrific performance in low-light conditions, the kind of stuff that you want when you're hunting with a high-end rifle scope. So if you'd like to learn more about the new Maven RS1 scope, you can visit mavenbuilt.com. And uh, the scope is available now for pre-order, but products won't begin shipping until May. And FYI, if you order during this pre-order time period, they're currently offering a $200 off promo. So check it out at mavenbuilt.com. Speaking of speaking of less is more, then um, how about broadheads? Are you uh, a simple, keep it simple with a fixed blade type broadhead, or do you like mechanicals, or, or what are your thoughts on the right broadhead? No, I'm a huge mechanical fan, and I wasn't for years. I grew up shooting, you know, the muzzies, and probably because they were the cheapest I could find or the wasps at Walmart, you know, Mm because me and Dad go in there and buy a pack of six and replacement blades, and we were good to go, you know. But through the years of pulling our hair out, trying to get those to tune and shoot the same, you know, I would literally have to ride on my veins. I remember being little and riding on my veins, you know, six inches left or you know, three inches low, and I would literally write where they hit at a certain distance. So I would look at that arrow and go, oh, i got to aim to the right <laughs> because those broadheads were playing so bad. So wow. when I was introduced to Swacker probably about nine years ago, I literally fell in love with those mechanicals. Um, and the main thing is they're the only ones that when they go into the cavity of a deer, they open up after they go through the first rib cage. So you're cutting vitals with brand new blades and that was the biggest selling point for me because i would literally shoot deer with a fixed blade or an open on contact um mechanical and i'd hit it in the lungs or hit it perfect and one time it would bleed really good and run 50 yards and the next time it would run 300 yards and i'd find marrow and there'd be broke blades or you know whatever so with most broadheads you got to cut through that first layer of fur and fat and then bone before you ever get to the vitals and you're dulling your blades and you're breaking your blades off before you ever get to the good stuff so when i started shooting swacker that's what i loved so much about the design was that it went in and opened up right as it went through that first rib cage so the first thing it cut was vitals with brand new razor sharp blades and man i've just been in love with them for nine years and so (laughs) I've, i've not shot another another thing since so um, I'm total, total mechanical, or really just a total swacker fanatic, to be honest, because I love the design. <laughs> and you don't have any issues with failing to open or anything like that that you hear with a lot of mechanicals? That hasn't been an issue for you, huh? No, I've never had an issue. And, I mean, I've shot everything from muskox to buffalo, moose, elk. I mean, everything with them and no issues at all. Just kill stuff super quick. That's what you want. <laughs> That's, that's right. Yeah, I mean, that's the goal. Yeah. yeah. So uh, move, moving down the line of, of gear then, um, you talked a, a few minutes, a while ago actually, about the fact that you use a thumb button release. Um, yep. Can you talk a little bit about different releases and what styles can help with different issues or different things or goals that we're trying to achieve? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I, um, I think we all probably grew up shooting uh you know, the wrist strap release or the, you know, the trigger release as we call it with the index finger. Um, and so 
then you've got your thumb button release, and then you've got what we call a back tension or a hinge, which requires you to rotate or pull through with pressure to fire it. And so the goal with release execution is always to have um, that surprise release. You're not anticipating when it's going off. You're not timing it. You're not forcing it to go off. You're aiming and just applying a steady pressure to fire it. But sometimes with with like a, a thumb trigger or something with that hard wall that's either it's cocked or it's fired and there's nothing in between. That's why a hinge has been so good for people because it has that little bit of movement, which is kind of a comfort thing. They can aim and just keep pulling until it fires. Um, we kind of look at it like, okay, if you're standing, you know, on top of a, you know, a shed or a building, you, you know, 12 foot to the ground, you either got to jump or you stay. There's no in-between. There's no easy way to get down there. You've got to jump off the ledge, you know. So with a, a hinge, it's kind of like putting a slide there from the top to the bottom. Well, it's easy. You just get on and you just slide down in a gradual motion and, it, you know, you're there. And so that's kind of why a lot of people will train with a hinge, and I do the same thing. When I start feeling like I'm timing that thumb button, I'll go back to my hinge and I'll just start pulling and, concentrating on aiming and then i can go back to my button and uh, shoot it really well but i think you need some kind of training device that's constantly you know reminding you what that's supposed to feel like that surprise release of just steady pressure until it fires so hmm. do you have a, a specific model that you would recommend as far as a hinge and then an actual in the field uh release especially for someone like you know selfishly someone like me who's trying to build this better habit of achieving that surprise release um is there a specific right. one or two you'd recommend yeah honestly the the new um true fire sear that just came out last year it's s-e-a-r the true fire sear is a, a hand release and it allows you to to set the, it's the most customizable hand release in the world and so you can set different link clicks you can really customize it to what you like and or you can say no click at all and a click and a hinge is so you don't pre-fire it. So you pull, and then when you hear that click, you know, okay, let's ease up. It's getting ready to fire, you know, if you're drawing back or something. So I think the True Fire Sear is the best one. I shoot in tournaments, and I hunt with the Sear. Um, and then the new one that I helped design, the thumb button I'm shooting, is actually a prototype. It'll be out this spring. It's called the Synapse. Um, and it is an unbelievable thumb button. And thumb buttons are really sketchy anymore like you get and it's all to do with the inside of them and how they're built as far as pre-firing on you um and um after you know 100 shots they'll start every once in a while you just be pulling back and they'll fire one down range and that's why i quit shooting them in tournaments you know several years ago so we really went through a lot of testing on you know strength of steel and different parts and why that was happening and built this new synapse true fire has and man i've shot thousands of shots through it and and it's just incredible so i think it's going to be something that's going to hit the market and be pretty hot here in the next couple months awesome so would would you say then that for someone that's that's getting pretty serious about archery and or bow hunting that it really is worth upgrading to some kind of either thumb button or hinge or, or something on those lines and, and getting away from the wrist strap? I, you know, not necessarily. I think I, you know, again, a lot of the top guys are still shooting wrist straps, but I think you need to have uh, a release that you go to that's different. I, I think it's either a different, um, 
you know, setting where it's harder or lighter than the one you shoot most of the time. So you get a different feel because what you do is you start timing that release. You start getting a little sloppy with that release and anticipating when it's going to fire and that causes target panic. So you want to have another release that you can pull out and literally shoot for a week or two and then go back to your, you know, your trusty release, you know, because then you kind of forgot the timing and you can just focus on aiming and and all that. So it really doesn't matter, you know, if you're shooting a wrist strap, a thumb button, a hinge, whatever. But I think you need to have a couple different releases that you can go back and forth with. And uh, it kind of keeps you honest, so to speak, keeps you focused on what you're supposed to be focusing on. And that's aiming. Yeah, that's that's good advice and a good idea to, to switch those things up. Keeps you from getting too used to it. Um, right. Yeah, I like that. So is there anything that we have not touched on when it comes to archery is there do you have like a pet peeve or like a thing that you just want everyone in the world to to know that got to work on this or don't make this mistake or learn this one lesson is there anything that is just so important that we haven't touched on yet that you want to make sure we we uh cover no i i think the most important thing is that we've talked about is, is making yourself uncomfortable you know in practice and and pushing the limits in practice. Um, and it makes those tough shots in the field seem easy. And that's the most important thing I think I've learned in archery is, is practicing, making it really tough on myself and not practicing to, to stroke my ego, you know, and to tell myself how good I am really practice to push, push the limits. And I think that's the biggest thing anybody can do and it makes you better in the process. So I think that's the biggest key really probably in life. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and not just archery is to push yourself and, and uh, make yourself uncomfortable and, and, uh, and it makes you better, um, whenever you're faced with a tough situation and, or, you know, what you've worked for all year. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, very wise words there. And I think that's probably a, a good way to end this one out. So for people that want to see what you're doing, whether it be online or on TV, can you can you point us in the right direction to see everything that's going on with you and Bow Life? Yeah, on um, on Instagram, it's um, Bow Life Levi. Um, on the, the web site is um, bowlife.com, and you can pretty much see everything there. And then on as far as our show, we air on the Sportsman's Channel um, Wednesday nights at seven thirty is our our best slot um or the best time there we are three or four times a week depending on the week and so that's bow life tv on the sportsman's channel and that's pretty much you know facebook it's just bow life tv so that's pretty much everything that we got and and on youtube same thing so we're kind of all over the place and you just search bow life you'll find us awesome well i'll make sure to include some links to those things and i've liked those uh those youtube videos you've been putting up this year covering the different uh, both set up tips and things like that. You did a nice job with that. So if, if anyone listening yeah, cool. wants to learn more about a few of these things we've talked about, definitely check out those YouTube videos. Levi does a nice job of going into more detail and demonstrating a few of these ideas. So man, I can't, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your, uh, your time today. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you, Mark. I appreciate being on here and I look forward to doing it again. Absolutely. Good luck this season. Thank you. And that's a wrap, folks. But uh, I want to take a quick second here to just reiterate something that I say on every episode at this point in the show. But um, I say it kind of quickly, and I say it at the very end, and I don't know how many people actually hear it and, and really process it. And it's the fact that I appreciate you. Um, I, I really, sincerely, 
from the from the bottom of my heart, as cheesy as that sounds, I appreciate you, every one of you who who takes the time, who gives me uh, the privilege of your attention and time to listen to what I have to say, to listen to what our guests have to say. Uh, it means the world means the world to me, uh, and I just I I couldn't do what I'm doing now without you. It means a lot, and I just want you to know that um, that I'm mindful of that. And I want to continue to do the very best job possible uh, to serve you all, to give you the information you need to to entertain at times, to maybe help you um, maybe live vicariously through some things that I might be doing or to, to laugh at the stupid things I'm doing. Um, I want to be able to make sure the Wired Hunt podcast and everything I'm doing is something that really brings value and, uh, and entertainment and information your way. Hopefully that's what we've been doing. Got some exciting things coming down the road here that hopefully are going to allow us to do that to an even better and uh, and higher degree. I'm excited for all of that. I'm excited to share all sorts of new exciting things for 2018 with you. And um, I'm rambling, as I often do. But uh, the point being is that uh, you guys are the best. So thank you for all that. Speaking of the best, I do, of course, want to thank our partners who also are a big part of the reason why I'm able to do this. So want to thank those people those companies so thanks to sitka gear yeti coolers matthews archery maven optics the whitetail institute of north america trophy ridge and huntera maps and with all of that said um and i wonder if any of you guys are still doing that drinking game when i say all that said if so um it's been a little light today but there you go there's a couple here at the end uh so with all that said thanks again for your support and until next time stay wired to hunt Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle.